Welcome to season two of the Powerless to Powerful Recovery podcast. My name is Jason. I'm an alcoholic and addict. I want to remind everyone that our mission, as always, is to share experience, strength, and hope across multiple media platforms. The story of addiction in the road to recovery. I also want to remind everyone that we are not affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous or any other 12-step based organizations or groups in any way. Today's episode, I'm going to be having my wife on. She's going to share a little bit about her experience, what it was like getting to know me in the beginning, what happened, and what it's like today. So I want to welcome Ashley to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So I think it's a very important part that people know like where we came from um, and where it all started so they can kind of understand how we got to where we are today. We met 12 years ago. Uh, we've dated for a little bit, so we've known each other. We've actually been dating for 11 years. We've been married for 10, and I don't think a lot of people truly understand that. We've been married for 10 years. You've been through me from the good times, plenty of bad times, and now we get to experience the good times together. You know, a lot of times when, when me and her talk about like our story and, and how good things are today and how grateful we are, and, and I used to tell her, you know, when I was gone, I would tell her that. We're taking our pain in one lump sum. We're going to take it all at once. So the rest of our lives, we just get to enjoy each other and get to experience life together in a healthy way. So we took our pain in a lump sum. We have a nine-year-old daughter and we got one on the way. Another baby girl due in February. So that's super, super exciting. So Ash, why don't you kind of tell them a little bit about how we met, what that looked like. Um, and then I'll, And then from there, what I'll do is I'll tell the truth of what it was like. So why don't you go ahead? Well, we did meet in 2009, working at the same company in different departments, and it might be hard to believe, but he didn't have the best reputation at this company. Um, he was known for being a player and kind of being that guy that all the girls wanted to be with and not the guy that wanted to be in a super serious relationship. So needless to say, I was warned multiple times to not get involved, not talk to him, not get close to him. So, of course, I was interested. Um, he was dating someone at the time, and so was I. So we just started being really good friends. We'd talk all the time. We'd joke. We'd see each other every day. We'd catch up on Wendy Williams together. We were just really good friends. Um, those relationships ended, and he, of course, decided to shoot a shot. And I said, when you ask me out on a real date, we can get this going. And it took a while, but he did. And honestly, we've been together ever since. So I remember it a little bit differently. Okay. <laughs> you pursued me. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. So you definitely pursued me. I was a little bit wild. Keep in mind, I just got out of prison in 2009 after doing a three and a half year prison sentence. I, that happened. I was only out for a couple months. Um, when she first started working there, when I first met her, I had a good reputation, didn't I? Ish. Ish. Okay. Ish. I'll take that. Um, the message that she sent me, if I could remember, if you had a good girl in your life, would you, could you behave? Is that true? Yeah. Okay. That is yeah, true. Something like that. Yeah. So she fired a shot at me and a little bit funnier of a story is I think that in the beginning, I, so we had a Christmas party, right? And she brought her boyfriend at the time to this Christmas party. And I remember looking at him and then my first thought was, man, I could I could hook up with her anytime I wanted to. There was actually another guy in the office who thought that he was going to possibly, you know, be with you or hook up with you. Um, 
And so one day I'm riding around, we're working, and I, I tell I tell him, I say, dude, come on, brother. I could be with her anytime you want. Put $100 on it. Guarantee I handle that. Well, I didn't think that it was going to happen the way it did, um, but she ended up messaging me, and then you know the rest is, is kind of history. And then I told her about that, and you weren't too happy about that. No, bet. so from the beginning, he's already guaranteed locked me in putting money on it. So no, not, not what every girl wants to hear, but yes, that's part of the story. Okay. That is part of the story. Okay. I just wanted, I just wanted to clarify it. Yes, okay. definitely. Part of the story. Let's keep in mind also that she wouldn't let me, uh, she wouldn't spend the night at my house. She wouldn't come over to my house. Netflix and chilling just wasn't an option. When she says, when you take me on a real date, then we can get started. She was definitely serious about that. She made me wait so long that I almost tapped out. I almost gave up. No, you definitely did. No, I didn't give up. You Well, you let me think you did, for sure. Well, anyone in the sales game knows that that's a technique called the fear of loss close. So I had a fear of losser. It worked. And, you know, here we are today. You know, so things went good, you know, real good for, for, for a period of time. You know, just like anything, you know, in a relationship at the beginning, everything's going good. And, you know, when we met, I was sober. I was doing the right things. I was, you know, successful at work. I drove a nice vehicle. Um, you know, everything was going really, really, really well. And for the people who know my story and have heard me do a speaker meeting or they possibly have listened to other episodes, they know that during this period of time, um, when I was sober and I got off probation early and I decided that I was going to go to uh, Halloween, uh, to Vegas on Halloween to celebrate, right? And so I end up going to, to Vegas. It's Halloween. It's one night. I'm there with my best friend who's now got 10 years of recovery through the fellowship. It's a miracle today that, that, you know, we had a dinner recently with my two best friends at my parents' house and they both have 10 years. I'm approaching four years. And just to be able to have all three of us together sober through a connection to a higher power in the program, it's just a miracle that we were able to have that dinner. But anyways, long story short, we end up going to Vegas I black out, I get drunk, I fall victim to that belief, which practically every alcoholic has, that is a long period of sobriety and self-discipline, qualified him to get drunk like other men. And so I I thought I could drink, I, it didn't end very well, and that started a relapse. And I was with my wife at this time. So again, things go so good till they go so bad. So I want to ask you this, Ash, um, when did you realize that it was starting to go bad? It was really hard for me to recognize, I think, things that people say are obvious red flags. I didn't have any context of drug use or addiction or anything like that. I was pretty much what they call a normie. I, I've only drank in my life. I haven't done anything to where I would notice something is out of control. But the first time I noticed serious things were happening because of you maybe not being completely healthy hmm. was the car accident when you're talking about your best friend and you had actually gone, I guess, off a cliff with him in the car with you and called me in the middle of the night and said, okay, both of us are severely injured. Um, we're in a work vehicle. Can you come up here? And the more questions I asked, the different answers I got. So I wasn't super clear on what was going on and never entered my mind that you were under the influence of anything, but I knew something wasn't right. I still had no idea of how to handle it. I had no idea of, do I ask questions? Do I just show up? Do I just support? It was the first time where I started thinking maybe everything is not as it appears. 
So, yeah, that was a little concerning, but I still didn't know what to do about it at that point. And I think it's important that, you know, our loved ones, like they really, truly want to believe what we say is true. Like they want to believe we're doing the right things. Even when they know we're lying, they just hope that it's just not true and not the case. And then they end up just supporting us even through it. It becomes a very difficult situation for them to be in. Um, and I think it's important. That's why I wanted to have you on this first episode, just to kind of give an idea from a different perspective, because many of the listeners of the podcast, you know, they suffer from addiction. So we rarely do we get to experience the other side of it. So I think it's important that we have you on the first episode. And I couldn't think of a better person to have on. Um, so that's important as well. You know, so ultimately this relapse and remember, I was making pretty good money. I, like I said, I drove a nice vehicle. I had my own place. It was furnished very well. I dressed nice, um, you know, and so when we have those things, you can conceal a habit for a period of time, right? Like you can continue to fuel your, your addiction when you have income coming in, when you're able to contain it. But it got to a point where I just couldn't contain it anymore. Um, things got really bad. You know, I couldn't lie about it anymore. Um, even though she was a normie and didn't have any experience with what I was going through, she started to connect the dots and she started to connect them pretty quickly. And if you're like me and the listeners out there, you know, um, the only program that I ever worked previously was step one when I can't lie my way out of it anymore. And then I go right to step nine and I start making amends. And so that's what happened. You know, I was at her parents' house and I ended up uh, saying I was going to be right back, just like I always said. And I didn't come back for very, very late. I'm talking midnight. And I left her there. Um, and, you know, that's the great, the insanity of it. You know, we love these people in our lives. We don't want to treat them horribly, but we're in, we're in the midst of a mental obsession of physical allergy. That's what it looks like, right? I want to be there, but I just can't not not use. I just can't not not be there. Um, and so, you know, I ended up uh, just having to get honest, man. And so that what that started and what that led to was the first bit of honesty and, and coming clean with her and letting her know the truth about what was going on and telling her everything at that point, you know, and, and you know, she's so amazing. You know, she supported me through the whole thing and, and, and through this whole journey. You know, it's, it's really extremely rare to find. And I don't know how many people our stories will actually touch because she's such an amazing woman that not many go through the things for a prolonged time to experience the miracle that happens at the end. We're just a fortunate uh, couple that was able to do that. But we put a lot of work in to get there. Um, it wasn't easy, but we continue to put that work in no matter what. I think it's because we uh, developed a best friendship relationship and we did things. Every every relationship I've previously been in, this one has been different to how it first started. Like the beginning of our relationship was different than any other, other girls I'd ever been. And I think that laid the foundation to go further. So I ultimately ended up at Community Bridges on Mesa Drive and Detox. And then from there, I went to Crossroads. So Ash, I want you to kind of tell them from like a different perspective, um, what that was like experiencing the person you love having to go through detox and then ultimately going to a, a crossroads to an inpatient program. What was that like for you? That was, and thank you, by the way, we did put in a lot of really, really hard work to get where we are. And I can tell throughout all these stories and all these painful things we went through, we gained such immense experience and admiration for each other throughout even the worst times that I know they all happen for a reason. But the detox and the crossroads experience really stick out in my mind as being some of the most stressful, anxiety-ridden times of our story, only because I didn't know 
what you were going through. I couldn't be there. Um, I guess the control freak in me wants to just make sure he's okay. So I, I always wanted to, even if he was in trouble or whatever, I had to be right by him just to make sure I can physically make sure he's okay. And that was something I wasn't able to do at that point. Um, when he was detoxing, that's 72 hours where he had to be alone. He had to be in medical care. So I didn't know what he was feeling. I knew I knew that he was trying to avoid withdrawal at any cost. So it must have been pretty painful. Um, we also had 72 hours to figure out where he was going to go at that point. So we had no idea. He cannot come back home, obviously. We're not going to start this cycle all over because he didn't want to be sick again. So I knew that was probably going to lead to him trying to get relief. So we had to figure out some type of treatment plan. So I still have all these notes and they're calling around, trying to get him to Salvation Army or trying to get him into some type of recovery or you know, home or shelter, whatever that looked like. Mind you, I am six months pregnant at this time. Mm, So it wasn't the easiest thing to do. I had no experience, no one to call, no one to guide me in the right direction. And out of nowhere, this kid is in detox and he comes up with Crossroads and gets himself a scholarship. Yeah. Yep. So he gets himself into Crossroads Arcadia. Um, Despite all the research I've done, that was the best option we had. We didn't have insurance or enough money to get him into a program. And he does this on his own. So despite, you know, the anxiety, the stress, the anger, the grief, the confusion I'm feeling, he has the ability to take care of himself at that point, which looking back is pretty impressive, but it was very confusing at the time. How do I really get mad at him? when he's trying to put his best foot forward, even I'm sure he was scared too, but he still did it. So the whole thing, very, very hard. Um, But it also led me to, I actually took myself to Bookman's and I started to learn about addiction. I remember buying a few books and saying, okay, if this is what's going on and this is going to change the course of my life and his life and our unborn daughter, I'm going to have to learn about something that I can't relate to. I'm going to have to learn how it's changing his mind and his body. And it's causing him to put something else before his family. And I started reading and I started trying to open up the dialogue despite all these things I felt towards him at this point, I really wanted to understand how do we fix this? How do I relate to it? How do we get past it? So that was really um, where I started to research and learn and not just for myself and how to understand my emotions, but to really stay close to him because he was going through something that I really couldn't relate to. And I really just wanted to support him. So that's the main thing I really, really remember about his detox and the whole crossroads. I learned a lot. Yeah. So I think it's important, you know, it talks about that in, uh, in the big book, right? It talks about the things in there is a solution that everybody tells us, right? Why can't you take it or leave it alone? You think he should quit for her sake. The doctor told him if he ever got high again or drunk again, it would kill him. There he is all lit up again. And then it goes on to say these are commonplace observations and the back of them is a world of ignorance and misunderstanding. We see that these expressions refer to people whose reactions are very different than ours. So her being a normal, a normie, right? 
her not having the mental obsession, the physical allergy, her reaction to alcohol is different than mine. So they don't understand it. So I think it's very important for everyone to understand if you have somebody in your life who loves you, whether it's your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your mom, your dad, your siblings, whoever it is, if they don't have that same allergic reaction, the very best piece of advice that we can give you is to educate yourself, to read the book, to understand why it's a disease and why we do the things that we do. And it comes from that allergic reaction, but it'll be hard for them to truly understand. You know, I remember her coming to see me in Crossroads. She was pregnant. I mean, I had lost everything at this moment. I had uh, spent all of our money. I got us kicked out of every place we'd ever been in. It got to the point of my addiction where it just got so bad, man. That was the only option. So I did a 16-day right track program over there. They allowed me to get a job after that. I went to a telemarketing company, a, a walking distance. I made a check in my first week, about $1,500 or $2,000 check, somewhere around there. And immediately I left, man. I left. I had a pregnant wife. Baby was three, four months out. We needed to get it settled, right? And so I ended up leaving, man. And, uh, you know, looking back, I mean, I wouldn't change anything in my story because it's where we are today. And I think that every part, and I believe that nothing happens by in God's world by mistake. And I had to go through everything that we had to go through everything to get to be where we are today and experience each other with such gratitude and excitement for the future. Um so I ended up, we ended up getting an apartment. Things went really well for a period of time. Our daughter was born. I was there for the birth. She was healthy. I started a business, opened my own telemarketing company. We got our own place, a very nice place out in Chandler. We got the vehicles. We started saving money, money, put money back into the bank. We were repairing all the relationships from the wreckage that I had caused on her side of the family, as long as, as well as my side of the family. Because my wife defended me even when she shouldn't have. Even when she knew I was I was messing up, I was screwing up, she still defended me no matter what. Um, and so there was a lot of cleaning up. But that whole reconciliation process, it started to begin. Things were going so, so well. Um, and, you know, I just can't help myself. I'm the type of guy that likes to cut corners. The main manifestations of my illness is lying, cheating, manipulating, stealing. And in the, in the type of industry that I was in, the telemarketing industry, that, that was just another day in the office. Um, and so that spilled over into other activities in my life. I started buying and selling stolen property. I started, I mean, everybody I employed was a drug addict. My business partner, who's got 10 years in or seven years, excuse me, in recovery today. And I just was at a Halloween party with him last night, right? It's just a blessing and a miracle that this has happened the way it has. But during that period of time, man, there were a lot of shenanigans going on. And ultimately one day, I checked the mail and I had a grand jury indictment in there, man, for a class two felony. And I remember knowing, I remember that feeling, man. I knew I was going to go back to prison. I had a very young daughter at the time. Um, I didn't even know what to say or, or what to do. And I knew I was going back to prison. And I told, I tell Ash, I said, I said, babe, I'm going to prison. Can you tell them what that moment was like? Do you remember what it was like when I got that mail and we sat down in the kitchen of our house and I showed it to you and I told you I was going back to prison? What was that like for you? That was another pivotal moment I don't think I'll ever forget. Um I can still feel the knot in my throat, the pit in my stomach, and I had never seen a letter like that before. So I was like, well, how do you know? You know, best case scenario, what are we looking at? Worst case scenario, what are we looking at? And I remember you're a mess. You're just, this is not good. There's no best case, worst case. I'm going away. Yeah, it's happening. So I remember just kind of having an out-of-body experience and just saying just keep it together like he doesn't need to see both of us don't need to be a mess right now 
So I just remember thinking, okay, well, we just plan it out. Like, this is just going to be like a vacation. Like, first, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get a lawyer. We're going to get some help. We're going to educate ourselves. And then we just, um, Bella's going to be in, you know, third grade. Worst case scenario, if you come out. Um, yeah, we started doing prison math already. We, we yeah, started we started doing prison math. Calculating and moving forward, and that's just what it is. Obviously, you weren't doing the right thing. You need to take a moment for yourself. So I'm just going to, you know, figure it out. And I just started going into this really positive headspace from just the first second, just thinking this is what we're doing. We're doing it together. That's That's it. I really didn't have time to react or absorb it. And looking back, I realized I prolonged that like really, really far. I held everything in and it just ended up blowing up later on. But um, from the first day you told me when you first and I know you held on to that letter for a while. But yeah, it was like a week. It was like a week. And I remember when I got that letter, I, I it was like she kept asking me, are you OK? Like something's wrong. Are you OK? Yeah. And I think she probably thought that I was using again. Um but I just, I didn't know what to say. I mean, if you've been to prison or in Arizona, I mean, I got listeners all over the world and, you know, 11 countries now and all across the nation. But Arizona, man, um, they don't play out here. They're going to give you a substantial amount of prison time. They have this sentencing uh, chart, right? And I could I could see it in my head and I knew I was going to be a category three. And I knew that five years, that would just, that would be the best, best, best case scenario. What I didn't realize is I got hit with the repeat offender program out here, which is a mandatory aggravated sense. Didn't realize that yet. Um, and I held on to that for a minute. And finally I had to get honest with her and tell her what was going on because she knew. And it was just, you know, I couldn't wait any longer, you know, and just like everything in my life, like when I have the opportunity to set myself up to be successful, to switch things around, to do things the right way. And keep in mind, I was sober at this time to do things the right way and to prepare my family for the future. I just don't do it, right? I didn't have a program. I didn't have a connection to God. I didn't have any other habits. And when I feel negative emotions, the first thing I know to do and the solution to those problems is to get high again, to lie, cheat, manipulate, steal. And that's what I did, man. I ran everything into the ground. I overdosed. We had to close down our business. I didn't have the heart to even keep it together anymore. And I started using again. And so two drug addicts running a business, employing uh, 30 drug addicts, I mean, you can connect the dots on that. That's not going to end very well. So that didn't end very well. All the money that we had in the bank, all the money I've been making from the business, everything that we had saved up. I spent all of it. I caught new cases. I picked up uh, organized retail theft, another organized retail theft. Now I'm boosting myself. Um, then I, you know, I picked up another heroin possession. So keep in mind, now I'm on uh, a bond. I'm OR on one case. I'm on pretrial services on another case. And I pick up a new case on three releases. And I remember finding myself um, in Maricopa County Jail, unbondable. Do you remember what that first phone call was like? Uh, it Everything just felt like it snowballed so fast. You had been trying to just conceal so much and hold it together and tell me the right things that I was afraid to ask at that point. I remember making you go to meetings and bring signed cards back. And little did I know you were just going to pick stuff up and have your dude sign the card for me. So I thought in my head I was doing the right thing leading up to that point. But it really blindsided me. I had no idea 
that's where you were at emotionally. I could only ask every day, is there anything you want to tell me? Are you okay? And I remember one day I was leaving to work and we said goodbye, good, you know, have a good day, whatever. And when I got home from work, you weren't there. And that was kind of how it got started. You called me from jail and I just knew he's not coming back this time. So that's really where it started. We, we had this plan, you know, just get to this state where I have to drop you off and time starts then. But, you know, it, it ended up differently. And, and that's really the part of the story because really it, it had to have gone that way. I don't think I could have let go any other way, but it was very traumatic, extremely traumatic. And I remember when I called you um, from downstairs in fourth Avenue. And I had called you after I got picked up. I got picked up by the U S marshals, by the way. Um, and I remember I called you and you said, I'll never forget it. You said, as long as you don't lie to me again, I'll support you through this whole thing. But if you ever lie to me again, I'm going to leave you. And I remember you saying that. And you said, is there anything you else you want to get honest about? And I kind of got honest about as much as I possibly could. Um, it was extremely emotional. I knew I was going to be doing a substantial amount of prison time at this point. My daughter was two years old. She's nine now. Um, and so I just knew this road, man, I was broken and it was tough, man. It really was. And so that started our journey. You know, I spent 10 months in County jail. I went to the hole multiple times. I got a couple of assault charges. I got maxed out, went max custody. Um, I mean, you name it every, <laughs> the way I am, I'm so hard headed. I got to experience everything. Um, and that's what it looked like for me, but you know what? You were at every single court date. You spoke to the lawyer, you asked him questions, you stayed on top of him. There was never not money on the phone. You put money on my books every single week. You know, the food's bad in there. She put money on my books every single week. Um, she came to see me. What was that visitation like over there at uh, Maricopa County? The county jail is no joke for families. I think going through that process for a 30-minute visit behind glass really opened up my eyes to how families and spouses and partners are treated because you have to wait like five to six hours in line outside just to be let in, to be searched like you're, you know, and I, I get that a lot of people are bringing things in there, but for the majority of people, they're bringing children in, they're bringing people are visiting their, you know, their loved ones to try and make it through addiction and all of these horrible decisions. And it's so traumatic. It's so sad. And it's so hard. And I did it every Saturday. I, I waited in line five to six hours outside for a 30 minute visit through the glass. And a lot of the time I was like, where did the time go? Um, that was truly when I felt you were at your worst. So it was seeing you in pain with tears in your eyes. And it was so hard. And so I used to always come back crying. Your parents would be like, maybe it's not the best idea for you to go. He'll be okay. You know, you skip a week, take care of yourself. And I'm like, no, he doesn't have anything to look forward to. He doesn't have any, any contact with anyone that, you know, is there for him. So it kept me going that 30 minutes, but I'm telling you the, the wait time, the conditions, the way you're talked to, it's, it's nothing nice for sure. And there was a couple times that you would wait three, four hours and then the whole, uh, county jail will get locked down and you would get turned away. I mean, that happened multiple times as well. Yes. And, you know, I was medium custody. So that's why I was behind the glass because I'd already been to prison once before. And so 
they treat us a little bit differently. We're higher custody. Um, I was at Durango at this point. Um, I ended up, like I said, ended up getting a couple of assault charges and uh, ended up getting bumped up to max custody after spending, you know, um, almost 40 days in the hole multiple times. And so from there, our visitations were all through um, Zoom, right? They were all on on, a, on the phone and on a screen. And, you know, that, that whole process was a whole nother thing in itself, you know, but it's very difficult. I don't think we realize, you know, exactly sometimes what our loved ones are going through. We call them on the phone. You're going to be here today. You're going to put money on my books. Um, did you take care of this? I need you to send this message over here. Um, what's up with this? Let me talk to my daughter. Right. And so some, we just don't get it sometimes, man. And so I think it's very important to understand that other side of it and, you know, what they actually go through, you know, just coming to love us, support us and see us. I mean, that's just a visitation process. Then we also talk about the court proceedings and what that looked like. So, again, sentencing and like the whole court process, I mean, for, for the guys and, and the girls that have to go through that on our end and how we have to wake up so early and we got to be transported and we got to be cuffed and we got to be shackled and we don't really sleep anyways because we're just consumed with anxiety and fear of what's going to happen. You know, I went through a court proceeding for 10 months and I was going to court, you know, once a month, sometimes multiple times a month. You know, I think it's very important that, you know, we kind of get to understand because, you know, Ash was at every single court date. She didn't miss one court date while holding down a job um, the whole time in courts in the morning during the week. Right. And she was there. Um, so can you tell them a little bit about what it was like to see me, you know, shackled um, to see me in stripes, to see me in a in the jury box. Right. To see me, you know, on a chain, chained to everybody else. What was that like for you, the whole process of getting there, speaking to my lawyer before, kind of getting an idea, only being able to make eye contact with me, not being able to speak to me? What was that like for you? Like you said, it's it's full of fear. Um, you're not able to sleep the night before. Anxiety, worry. I felt a lot of those same things. Um, I remember trying to find some type of positive thing to look forward to and i kept thinking well it's kind of like a free visit yeah. kind of you know a way to see him without glass in front of me um but then when you get to that courtroom and you're seeing the situation that you're really in that made it real that made it very i was sad i was depressed i realized okay this is really what we're doing it makes it real um Seeing just knowing you and knowing your expressions and seeing all those things on your face made it very hard to leave that courtroom. Um, we had a lawyer that was not as aggressive as I'd like. So all of my meetings with him, I just always felt like I was talking to a wall. So that was tough for me. Like we need to do more. We need to do we need to be more aggressive. He's a good person. He's going through addiction. You know, I, I've researched mitigating factors and all these things we needed to do to present, you know, the best parts of you and, and what we needed to do. And, and he just wasn't as aggressive as I wanted him to be. So I was definitely frustrated, confused, upset, so many different things with all of these different elements of real life. You know, we had a, a little girl at the time. So I'm worried about, you know, if I, leave work at this time I got I might be late picking her up so there's a whole real life element to it as well of making these court dates and shifting around my schedule but then it's also like 
non-negotiable. I got to be there. So it was, it was a really tough time, but I remember I, I just felt like I had to make it happen. I had to be there. Yeah. And so, you know, again, I was in the repeat offender program, right? So it's a mandatory aggravated sentence. Apparently I pissed off a bunch of police officers in Chandler. And because of that, the police officers wrote me. So as, as much as she's right about the lawyer not being aggressive enough, um, really, the truth is it's a mandatory aggravated sentence. And there really wasn't much he could do, even if he wanted to, even though it didn't really seem like he wanted to. No, I, I was seeing it from, obviously, a loved one's point of view. Like, there's always something you can do. There's always more that can be done. So, yeah, there was a lot up against us at that point. There was a lot of things that um, I learned later on. They had a lot of evidence. They had a lot of surveillance. They had a lot of, you know, different locations that of places he had hid and a lot of things I wasn't aware of. But at that point, I was like, I don't care what it is. Like, he's, he's a father. He's a husband. He's a good person. Like, we need to make this happen. And there's a deal out there that's meant for us. And I'm not stopping till we get a good one. And this lawyer was like, you just don't get it. You are going <laughs> to get what you get. And that's what it is. And I just wasn't trying to hear it. So, yeah, she wasn't trying to hear much of that. Um, and so ultimately, you know, after, you know, sitting in county jail for 10 months and finally this this, uh, this uh, settlement conference that we've been waiting so long for, you know, me and Ash have this idea that we're going to sit down and negotiate a better deal. At this point, it was what, 10, 12 years. Mm-hmm. It was like 10 or 12 years the whole time. I'm looking at 10 to 12 the whole time, not coming down, nothing. Um, and so we were hoping that what the settlement conference would be was an opportunity for us to speak. Because if anyone's ever been, so what a settlement conference is, is the judge is in front of you, but he's in plain clothes sitting in a chair. Your prosecutor that's and keep in mind, rope program, different prosecutor office, pit bull prosecutors trying to make a name for themselves, bottom line. And so then on my side, I have my lawyer. My mom was there. My dad was there. And my wife was there. And so I remember sitting there. And before they even let them in the room, my lawyer came up to me and said, eight years, best you're going to get. There's, I mean, I don't even know why we're even doing this. They're not budging. Eight years, stipulated plea. That's what you're getting. And I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, what are we even doing here? Why did I just sit in a cell for 12 hours all morning long just to get to this point if that's what it is? So I remember I was sitting in the jury box. My prosecutor wasn't there yet. They brought my family in and I kind of talked to them from across the courtroom. I was like, they're giving me eight years. Like, that's it. Like, there is no like, you know. And so I remember sitting down. The prosecutor came. They finally moved me over. And so I could sit next to him. And I remember him saying you know, eight years is the best you're going to get. And I was like, well, what happens if I take it to trial? And he, I remember, I'll never forget. He laughed. He's like, huh, trial. He started pulling out all these DVDs of all this evidence. He's like, that's eight years. Kept stacking the DVDs on top of each other. He's like, if you go to trial, which you don't even have a shot in hell at trial, and they wheel a TV around, like they're going to start playing some evidence. And I'm like, oh shit. So I tried to pump fake him. I tried the same fear of loss um that I did on my wife <laughs> when we first met with the prosecutor but this time it didn't work and so I remember turning around everyone in my family's crying except my dad my dad just looking at me and I say what do I do and he's like you better sign that eight years and so I did man I signed it right then I got sentenced right then and I remember if anyone's ever been sentenced they have to read off every single case and the specifics of every single case 
How long did that take? About 45 oh, minutes? Way longer than I thought, I'll tell you that. Yeah, it took. Uh, it felt like three hours. There was yeah, a lot going on there. And it also brought, you know, because again, our families want to see the goodness. They don't want to believe that that's exactly what happened. They want to believe that maybe someone else played a part or it isn't as bad or the cops are out to get you. But once they hear that and you plead guilty to it, it's just a thing. Like that's what it is and that's what happened. I remember my dad left. My mom and my wife sat there the whole entire thing, listened to everything. Um, and then they, uh, you know, they left, I left the courtroom and I knew I was getting eight years. I got sentenced to eight years. And I remember, uh, going back to fourth Ave, of course we were on lockdown cause we were always on lockdown. I remember just laying there just thinking, you know, I'm counting birthdays. I'm counting holidays. I'm counting my daughter's age. I'm counting my wife's. I mean, I'm just trying to wrap, you know, we always talk about doing prison math. I take this off 85%. This Senate bill in 2017 is going to go into effect. That'll drop another 20% off TR 77 days. Then I can get another 90. If I take the SAGE class, the 1291 Senate bill, we're always doing prison math in our mind. And what it is, is just a coping mechanism for us and our families for that matter, just to come to terms with how long we're going to be gone. You know, uh, and just so it makes it a little bit easier to cope with the amount of time. I mean, we're talking eight years, right? Um, and so ultimately, I ended up getting sentenced. And, you know, one thing I do want to add is I remember I was in this was like I was still in uh, minimum custody. And I remember I called you and I asked you on the phone. I was like, hey, just want to give you a heads up plenty of time in advance. I'm going to need like 400 <laughs> when I get to the yard because I'm going to need a TV, shoes, <laughs> So I start prepping her. You better start saving some money. And I remember she's like, do you remember what you said to me? I don't. Yeah. She's like, I don't know who you think you are, motherfucker. Yeah. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't nice at that and point. I was like, what? I'm receiving bills from your ass already. This is crazy. Yeah. And she hung up on me. And then that was the only time she didn't answer for like two days after that. Oh, right. And I kept right. calling you. I kept calling you. And you didn't answer. I'm like, oh, my God, she's pissed. So now fast forward eight months. I hadn't said anything. I wasn't I wasn't going to dare bring up a TV ever again. And I remember after I got sensed, I called her. She was emotional. Um, I knew I'd be leaving in the next couple of days. And she said, hey, I just put that money on your books for, for the TV. <laughs> I was like, thank you. Need that. Oh, God, thank God. You know, and so I had a good start. So I ended up uh, going through Alhambra and we wrote letters to each other through Alhambra. I was there for postcards. postcards. Well, letters in Alhambra. We wrote letters in Alhambra. Oh, right, right. She wrote me so many postcards. I still have the postcards. I mean, I'm talking stacks. I get 15 postcards at one time every other day. Um, I think it's always important. I want to say this too. my mom and my dad supported me through this whole thing. They wrote to me. Um, they answered the phone. They put money on the phones. They supported all of us, a whole family through the whole experience. They've been amazing too. I have a godmother who wrote me every single week, every week, the whole entire time I was gone. So I had a lot of love and support. You know, we get sober and find recovery and this isn't even close to where I find it yet, but going forward in the future, you know, we get sober because we don't want to feel the way we, we feel anymore. You know, we're just sick of it. It's unacceptable to us. But the wives, the mothers, the fathers, the aunts, the uncles, the brothers, the siblings, the ones who have supported us and loved us even when we sh they shouldn't have, those are the motivating factors that help us to continue to get our feet moving a little bit quicker every day. So it's important to attach to them as motivators, but we do it because we want to, we want to, we don't want to feel the way we felt anymore. So I end up getting sentenced to eight years. Um, they send me out to Tucson complex, which, you know, there's plenty of options. And of course, I just wanted to be close where I would be able to actually see them. We couldn't wait huh, for a, 
um, a contact visit. We must have <laughs> talked about that for months, how good that was going to be. Yeah, we, we definitely look forward to that. Yeah, we look forward to that. So I end up going to Santa Rita unit and I'm out there in Tucson. And finally, you know, it's a you know five to six week process for them to get approved, to come see us, to do all these things. And so we had that first visit at Santa Rita. You came, you brought Bella. I hadn't seen Bella that whole time because she didn't bring Bella. She didn't, we didn't feel like it'd be good for her to go through that experience of visiting me in county jail. She was really young. It's a four or five hour wait for 30 minutes. So I hadn't seen her for almost a year, close to a year at this point. So I got to see her. It was an amazing visit. I got my TV. We had got every, I mean, I was all set up. The visits were good. The phones were turned on. I got to kiss you. I got to hug you. You got to fondle me with your hands because, you know, you <laughs> couldn't help yourself. Um, yeah, you know, you know what it is. Whatever. Okay. And uh, so then um, that very after that very first visit, two days later, I get page twoed. Yeah, I, that's right. Yeah, I catch an. Uh, so they bring up an old case. They roll me up and I go back to county jail. I go back to county jail and I remember it was just so devastating to have to go back. Keep in mind, I'm in max custody. Keep in mind, I, you know, that my mind's racing of how much more time they're going to give me. It's just so much. And, uh, you know, and I remember calling her again from downstairs, 4th Ave, and she hears the different recording. So she knows that I'm back in Maricopa County. She's like, what is going on? I'm like, it's an old case that came up. I don't know what's going to happen. I was crying and she's like, it's going to be okay. You know, the phone calls are cheaper at least, right? You're closer for visits, even though they're on Zoom or, you know, it's it's going to be okay. Everything will work out. Um, and I'll never forget that. It made me feel better, a lot better at that time. So I ended up sitting in county jail for another, what, 60 days? Yeah, it wasn't that long. Yeah, it was about 60 days. They ended up uh, giving me probation for that case. They wanted to give me more time on top of it. We didn't pay for a lawyer and I had a really great public offender and she really went to bat for me. Um, and I ended up getting probation when I got out. So it ended up working out and I went back out to Tucson complex. So it's important to understand, like in order to maintain a long distance relationship, there's a lot that has to go into it. That's mandatory to maintain that connection, to have healthy communication, to still make each other feel like you're a part of their lives, to support each other through each of, cause we're on, we're doing a journey together, but we're on two different paths. It's two completely different things. So how do you appreciate that with each other? Um, so there was a lot of things that we did. You know, she came to see me every other week. I was what? How long was I in Tucson for? A couple of years? Yes. I was there for a couple of years. She came every other weekend with my daughter for two years and never missed. Never once, not money on the phone for calls. We talked multiple times a day. She got a Google number so we could get cheaper calls. You know, and there's one thing. She actually made me a newspaper that was called what? The Ansara Insider. And why don't you tell them a little bit about that? Because so, it's really impressive and it's just something that means so much to me. And I still have every copy of it. And she did it for about, I don't know, six, seven months straight. Every single week there was a new edition. And what were some of the things that were in there? Why don't you share that with them? So I really, I started reading about long distance relationships and, and like, you said you have to really be connected on every level of your life so you feel like you're relating to that person even though they're far away so it was my day-to-day -day work life it was um my hobbies the things i picked up along the way since he hadn't been home and i started 
you know, doing things like thrifting. I became a pretty good shopper. Luckily, it was just goodwill, but I started, you know, being able to pick out vintage things and and really start um, enjoying my time, just something I'd never been interested in before. Started spending more time with my nieces and my siblings and doing things around town. I had my own place at that point. So I was taking him around my neighborhood and taking pictures and doing little things that I would notice started being a part of my letters. But then I said, you know what, maybe I should just do this on a weekly basis and format it a little differently. Like what would kind of stimulate his mind to make this interesting so he knows I'm okay. So I started looking at um, just different formatting and publisher. I, I forget how I did it, but I created these little areas of interest in my life and I made it like a newspaper and I'd send it every week and I'd do like a little spotlight on our daughter and what she was learning in school and then what I was doing at work and he had something to look forward to and then I had something to look forward to and it really continued so that we were building our own kind of coping mechanism but we were also staying connected so we have those now and it's amazing that I even had the foresight to be that creative in the moment, but also to keep us both engaged. Um, I'd ask him all the time, "What? which one did you like best? What did you like more about this one? And he'd tell me, I want to see more of what you got. I want to see more of what our daughter's doing in school or whatever the case may be in it. It, it kind of just grew and grew. And we both just really started doing something together. So also, you know, not only that, we she would send me books. We'd read the same books. We'd discuss them through letters or over the phone. There was actually a book she couldn't copy. She hand wrote out every single page of the book um, so we could you know, still continue to further our relationship, be connected, and learn and grow from the experience. She sent me so much uh, material, a lot of recovery-related material, a lot of relationship material. Um, and sure, I read it and we talked about it, but I really started to utilize this whole box of material that she had sent me years prior when I found recovery and I started to use it and I still use a lot of it today. And it's just crazy to see how this whole journey takes place. So I end up staying there for a couple of years. Finally, I get reclassed. I come down um, to a minimum yard because I was on a medium custody yard. I was on a three yard at this time. They moved me to Florence North unit. Um, so now I'm 45, 50 minutes away. She's coming every single weekend. I'm getting to see my daughter every single weekend. Every, every, you know, every, every two, three weeks, she would come alone. That way we could have our, our own time together. Yep. Me and my daughter run around like savages. I mean, so we're talking, keep in mind, multiple phone calls every single day, gas that it costs to get all the way out there, bringing $40 worth of quarters every single weekend, you know, doing all these things, man, the whole time doing them all the way through, you know. I always think about, you know, there isn't one thing that I could possibly have asked more from you. I mean, that's how amazing you truly were and, and still are today. Um, it's just a blessing as well. So, you know, this is where the, the story starts to change. You know, at this whole period of time, I was sober the majority of that time. I mean, I had smoked spice like occasionally, like a couple times, like nothing, nothing crazy at all whatsoever. I wasn't working a program. I was just working out, focusing on my family. I had my little old prison job, right? And, you know, that was it. And we were just trying to make it, man. And that's just what, it, just trying to make it together as a family. Um, and so we started getting a ton of visits. Uh, we started, uh, we had a little incident with a with a cop there. We got into it, got her suspended. So now we had a target on our back. 
Um, we couldn't keep our hands off each other <laughs> multiple times. We got a couple warnings, like 10 of them. Yeah. We caught a couple minor tickets. And then ultimately we got a major ticket and they actually hit me with a conspiracy charge. Conspiracy to commit misconduct and visitation. That's how they classified it. It was a class A ticket and I lost my visits for six months and then three months behind the glass, non-contact and no phones for six months. And I remember uh, mm, I was crushed. I was devastated. And again, like I said, I hadn't worked a program. I didn't have any other solutions. So now I'm feeling a whole bunch of negative emotions again. I don't like the way that feels, and the only solution I have is to use drugs and alcohol and, and gamble, and that's what I did, man. Um, I relapsed hard. Um, I didn't have any contact with them. I was left on my own self-will, and I started to run around that yard, um, you know, falling way, way back into all the old behaviors again, man. And uh, now I'm calling her from a, a cell phone, acting like I'm not in a cell phone. I'm, I'm calling her. Uh, for money. Now it's not once a month, it's three times a week. Now I'm calling everyone in my family for money. And it's just, she's starting to become aware again of those old behaviors. And remember now we've been doing this for a minute. So she starts to see the change and the difference. Um, I end up get, you know, go to the hole. Um, I end up getting moved to Kingman. And I remember I got to Kingman and that was a whole shit show of a nightmare of how that all unfolds. And now I'm calling her daily. I'm crying. I need money and I'm lying to her. Um, you know, it's just, it, it got, it got so bad, man. And, uh, I found myself in the hole and I remember I called her from the hole with a dirty UA, tried to lie to her about it, about why it was contaminated in a bad sample and all this. And I knew at this point with that dirty UA, I wouldn't be able to see them for a long period of time. Um, I'm not going to get into the whole journey of that whole experience, my whole journey of recovery. Cause that's not what this episode's about. Um, but it's just about being able to show you a different perspective. So seeing me go through that change, what was that like for you? That was a really, really hard time because I felt myself see patterns that I thought were over. And because I felt those things again, I felt, you know, he's putting something before his family again. He's, you know, all of it was lies. All of it. He played me again. He said what he needed to say to get what he needed. Um, You know, all of these negative things that everyone around me had told me, he's a fast talker, you need to be careful, he's this, he's that. And I was like, no, 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 you're wrong. All of those things, he's starting to give me evidence that those things were true. So again, again, so it left me feeling disconnected, alone. I felt like I had no choice but just to self-preserve. I had to just disconnect and work take care of our daughter and wherever the you know wherever we landed that's where we landed that's what was meant to happen so I had to really just disconnect he'd call me well you'd call me for money and I'd you know sometimes I'd say you know maybe I just need to support and trust that he's doing the right thing so sometimes I would sometimes I wouldn't for the most part I really wanted to I wanted to believe that you needed something because of the reason that you said. And I wasn't going to overanalyze. I wasn't going to say, you know, what if he's, what if you're not? What if you're lying? Didn't want to go down that path. So a lot of the time I would just do it. I'll just trust that I always did the right thing. I always supported. I always gave what you needed because you're in that situation. I don't know what that's like. Again, it was empathy. A lot of what I did was out of empathy. I don't know what you're going through. So if I can be that support, let me go ahead and do that. But in my heart, I knew 
Well, in your heart, you were getting full of resentment. Absolutely. It was building up. It was the anger, the resentment, the how can we be going through this again? But at the end of the day, ultimately, I wanted to support and just him to know however the chips land, he was loved. So I held all that in. And she held it in for quite a long time. And it's still some of the things that we're still working on together. Um, trying to figure out ways to overcome the fears and the resentments from the past and find balance in our life today. And we'll kind of talk about that as we kind of close up the episode. So ultimately, I sat in the hole for about 90 days. My phones were off. I didn't talk to her for the whole time. It was about three months. I wasn't able to speak with her. She, We wrote letters, um, but getting mail in the hole and getting mail out in the hole was just extremely difficult process. So they'd be all jumbled up. If I got them, if, if mine even went out, we never really knew because the letters never really matched up. We speculated on where I was going to go. In that moment, I had realized that love is an action word. You know, she used to tell me on the phone after I call her for money and I would say, I love you. And she'd be like, stop saying that. No, you don't. Don't say that anymore. And I was like pissed off and I just couldn't believe she would even say something like that to me. How many times did you say that to me? I felt like that was a daily thing. Like, don't say that. We're not in love right now. You're, You're not actively showing me that that's where we're at. We're in survival mode. I'm helping you out because that's what you need, but do not say you love me because that's not what's happening here. Well, and ultimately love is an action word, right? So my actions were reflecting, you know, that I hate her. I hate my daughter. I hate my mom. I hate my dad, you know, and that was a real big realization for me, man. And and uh, in that moment of realizing that and understanding, like, look at me, I'm in the hole in Kingman, Arizona, dude, all these things that I thought I stood for in prison, I've broken those things. I'm like the lowest of the lowest. And in that moment, it became unacceptable to me. I knew I wanted to do something different. I knew that I was willing and ready and open minded. And I was ready to get honest and just I just didn't want to feel the way I felt anymore. And uh, I just was ready to begin that journey. And so 90 days later, there was one yard in the whole state I thought that I would never, ever, ever move me back to, which was Florence North Unit. And by the grace of God, they did, man. And so that's where my journey of recovery started. I'm not going to so much get into that. But over the next three years, um, I went on to work my steps multiple times, have a sponsor, attend five meetings a week, teach a drug class for the next two years, work with a thousand men. I probably sponsored over 150 men. Um, or at least a hundred over this period. I mean, I had 10 sponsees at any time. I'm calling, I'm making amends. I'm working with uh, administration to help people who are struggling on the yard. I'm speaking at every orientation. My life completely changed, flips, and it just does a complete 180. And I start to elevate um, and become the best version of myself for once. And I'm able to start to contribute um, to the relationship uh, with my wife for the first time. What was that like for you? seeing that, seeing me find recovery. So I guess, you know, the question is like finding recovery, you know, and one would think like for her to, to want me to be the best version of myself, to pray for all these things. You know, it talks a lot about that into the wives. When we find recovery, you know, our wives and our loved ones, they kind of struggle with that, trying to understand why a program um, or a sponsor uh, was able to help them when you weren't, why your love wasn't good enough. And, You know, it's a lot of codependency going on, you know, talks a ton about that to the wives. You know, originally I wanted to kind of cover more to the wives, but I thought it's important for just for you guys just to hear our story, man, because we get asked all the time. Um, She's helping women. Um, I'm helping a ton of guys. People want to hear our story. So instead of talking so much about the wives, we just kind of decided we'll just kind of just talk, man. We'll just kind of 
see how we got to where we are and maybe we'll double back around and really go over to the wives and really break it down. But we struggle with a lot of those things. You would think me finding recovery that everything would just be amazing now, but it wasn't because we had to each find our own identities again. She started to understand that, you know, the codependency was there and you know, I'm calling her on the phone. I'm blowing her hair back. I'm bugging. I'm helping everybody. I had a spiritual experience today. And she's like, please, dude. I, I what? OK, I'm glad. I'm glad you're having so much fun. I just worked a 10 hour day. I just picked our daughter up from school across town. It's almost eight o'clock. I have to shower her, feed her get her into bed and I still got more work to do. So I'm glad you're having the time of your life, you know? And so I had to like dial back like my phone conversations, but I was starting to share the book with her. I started to share my experience with her. Um, she came to visitation. I made an amends. I got my, my visits back early. I worked this whole program and over the next three years, things got amazing. So what, let me ask you this question then, Ash. What was it like? Tell me some of the positives of the, the change and tell me some of the negatives that actually came from, came through. Because I think it's important for everyone to understand that just because your loved one finds recovery doesn't mean that everything is just amazing again. So what what are some positives and what are some negatives that you experienced over the next three years um, of me working a solid program of recovery? I think it is important, like you said, to realize it's never a clear cut just realization like, oh, great. Now everything's fine. He's dependable and reliable and trustworthy again. It was very confusing for me. Um, just like you said, I was very confused as to how one program that you threw yourself into was all of a sudden everything you needed to have these realizations that I've been telling you the whole time. True. You True. started repeating things to me and I said, when did you decide to start listening to me? Yeah. And these were the same things that you would learn in the book that were kind of just worded differently that I was telling you, get out of your own way. Well, so it's important that a lot of people understand like every, there's multiple paths to recovery. If anyone reads self-help books, like they're all the same material. It's just a different delivery. So she had been sending this material, which for since County jail. She'd been sending me the same material, just presented in a different way in the big book. Um, and it's just the path that I gravitated towards. And so that's what she's saying. She's saying, dude, have you been reading everything I've been sending to you? Like, hello. Right. And so what was it like, you know, just understanding that it, this is going to be this it was going to last? What'd that look like for you? Um, that was a huge part of it is just realizing you probably had to learn it on your own. It didn't matter if I had sent postcards and letters and all these great things with so many pieces of advice. I came to learn that you had to do that on your own. So once I saw something click for you and that you were able to translate that into helping people every single day and you were just consumed by it, it actually started to be really inspiring towards me. And then I realized that you were doing it not just for people around you, but you were starting to reach out to their families. And in visitation, I would notice that we were being approached by people's parents and their siblings and their spouses. And this was something that he was really being known for. So it started to really become real once I saw that evidence, once I saw people were gravitating towards him for help and for advice and it made me want to be involved, really. It really kind of pushed me and motivated me to, to find my presence within your whole recovery and, and change. So it's important that, you know, everyone understands, you know, like 
our families, our loved ones, they know us. We're, when we lie to them, they know the truth. And they could also see the change as well. They could see the the type of conversations that we're now engaging in. They could see our physical appearance has changed. They could tell by the tone of our voice that things are different. They can see the whole shift. And she she saw it for a prolonged period of time. And like she said, the amount of people I was, I mean, I, I, mean, I work with so many men on that yard. I had the privilege. But not only was I doing those things, she was doing these things as well. And she was doing these things since before um, I found recovery. You know, her and my mother were a part of the um, American Friends Service um, Committee. Uh, it's a state. It's a, a program that goes every single year and puts on a big day, Reframing Justice Day. They spoke to senators. They spoke to legislators, lobbying on our behalf for change in the prison system, not just for early release Senate bills, but overall conditions for the greater good. I mean, my mom and my my wife did that the whole time I was gone. Every single year, multiple events. Um, and I also asked her to be a service plenty of times. I'm talking about bringing people to visitation, sending messages, um, helping people out when they got out. You know, there was one time where I had a, someone that my celly that I live with, you know, his girl needed a ride. Um, so I had my wife pick her up. Little did I know that she was going to need to get picked up from the strip club at 5 a.m. <laughs> he picked her up from the strip club. She drank a 40 in the bathroom when you stopped at the gas station. Yeah. Followed that down by a red line yeah. energy drink, freaked out, had a panic attack, threw up on the side of the car. You had to pull over. You actually did her hair and makeup um, in the parking lot. Right. Because we had to get it together before. It was <laughs> you had so, to get it together. Right. Yeah. And then you picked her up multiple times after that. Right. For she's, me. She's and so, a nice girl, so she's been of service the whole time, you know, um, you know, and so she started to talk to the families from visitation. She started to work with some of the girlfriends and some of the parents and started to maintain relationships with them to be of service in that area. Along this way, I, I met some people um, that I had the privilege of working with and, and you know, helping people get to their reentry facilities called New Freedom. And I met these people. Um, and so ultimately, my, my wife works now at New Freedom. And it's crazy how that whole experience kind of happened. Um, it came through my service, her service, connected them together. And ultimately, um, when I got released, she was already working there, man. And it's just, it's crazy. I think it's important for everyone to understand, not only were you supporting me, always that visit, um, money on the phone, uh, you know, letters. I mean, you name it, you always did all of that at all times, never once. Um, did you falter in any way? You always loved me through your actions. But also, she showed me a different way of love, the actions that she put forth with our daughter, um, with our family. Let's keep in mind, this is seven years later, right? And when I left uh, originally, when the marshals hit me and I went to county jail, I left you with nothing, no car, no money, no place to live. I left you with absolutely nothing. And that's the truth, right? And so during this period of time, she ended up getting a, a job, right? She got a better job. She stayed there, got a better job. She started to save money. She rebuilt her credit. She paid for all the things and my mistakes that were in her name because that's what we do. We put it in our girls' names. So she paid the price for all those things. She cleaned up my wreckage of the past financially. She was able to repair relationships, keep my daughter present in my life. Um, so I still have an amazing relationship with my daughter because of my wife. She was able to be the son to my parents and a daughter to my parents when I wasn't able to be there. She was able to support my brother um, going through everything that he had been going through. Her family, her siblings, her brother, her sister, her parents, the whole mess, the whole thing. And we continued. She elevated herself to get a better job after a better job after a better job and continue to push our family forward in such a way. So when I got released, 
Um, we were in the best position we had ever been. And now me contributing and doing my part has just elevated us into a whole nother stratosphere at fourth dimension, like it talks about in the big book. Um, and so I think it's important that everyone hears that from the other side. It wasn't just all the things, which is a full-time job, just supporting someone in prison um, for that, that amount of time and everything that comes with it. But she also elevated and excelled our family in such a way that's just, um, it's remarkable and it's commendable. I mean, you did that. Thank you. Okay. I mean, you did the damn thing. That's, that's the truth. Um, and so release day, right? What a trip. Yeah. Release day. Um, thank you for that. Going through all those things and being present and working and ultimately you're looking forward to one day and you build it up and you build it up. And as it got closer, we did a hundred day countdown and even working at such an amazing place like new freedom. I had my coworkers yelling down hallways, what day are we at? And, you know, I'd yell 72 and it's going down and down and down. So I really built to stay up, not having any expectation of what it would really be in reality. And, um, it came and it, it was nothing like I expected. So what it, what it felt like, so she came to pick me up. She was there, my daughter. We had talked about what it was going to be like. Of course, that we both envisioned it in our own way, what it's going to be like. Um, you know, and she's sitting on the uh, end of the trunk with her arms crossed, um, just waiting for me. Like got one my of, Goodfellas moment. Yeah, you got your Karen from Goodfellas moment. Yeah. That happened. And then, uh, you know, my daughter ran up and it was, that part was the way I envisioned it. And then I gave my wife a hug and a kiss and we got in the car. And when we started to drive away, it was the craziest thing. Um, it felt like I had been gone for like 10 minutes and she just dropped me off at the store or just came. Hey, babe, I need you to come pick me up. And that's what it felt like. Um, and we were both kind of tripped out like this, like doesn't feel like that seven years just happened. And what it is, and what we've talked about it multiple times, it was just a testament of the type of work we put in, the love we have for each other, the connection we maintained, even through the hardest of hard times, even when I made it difficult, just to see that moment, that feeling was just the culmination of that because we never left each other, right? And so it was like she just picked me up because that's what she did. She just came and gave me a ride and picked me up, but it's because of all the work that we had put in. Um, and so it's just, it was crazy. Uh, so now kind of just to, to wrap it up, like we don't have all the answers. We don't have it figured out. Everybody's journey is a little bit differently. Um, balance is something that I really struggle with. I want to speak. I want to do recovery. Typical and classic to the wives, right? All my attention is going to help others. I was gone for this time. I definitely owe her. She deserves. I want to be there. I want to spend the time with her, but I know I have to work recovery. I got a job in recovery. I wanted to work right away. I want to spend time. I want to get a phone. I want to buy a computer. I want to start a podcast. I got to go to Prescott to see my mom and dad. I got to get the car uh, insurance on the car, but I want to spend some time with you. Mm -hmm. I'm getting asked to speak all over. I'm a people pleaser and a constant overcommitter, right? And so we struggle a little bit with balance. You know how and, and we're working on it. It's continuing to get better. We continuously have conversations about it. What do you think the most important part is with a couple trying to find balance between a relationship and recovery? What do you think the most important thing is? I think what we've learned and what we continue to learn is not just communication, but empathy for each other. Um, you can say a lot of things out of anger or hurt, but really at the end of the day, it's wanting to be on the same page, wanting to be heard, wanting to be um, validated. So 
a lot of the time I've said, unfortunately, I did not wait for this, sir. Excuse me. <laughs> I deserve the flowers. I deserve those, all these romantic things. And it's taken me a lot to realize when you're in a place of disconnection, like, like we were in so long, your mind will take you to what you think is going to be the, you know, the epitome of a relationship. I want it Valentine's Day every day. I want this. I want that. Well, when you get back into regular life, you realize just what a blessing that is. And that's kind of where we're at today. We love going grocery shopping together. We love going to get our cars washed together. We like those little things. So it's really important to be grateful for just regular life. And I think that's really brought us back down to earth. He's included me in his service commitment. So that's really. Yeah, so we have that commitment together. We, we do. We chair a meeting together at Crossroads. And it's really made me realize is I didn't like this phrase at first, but I've heard, you know, recovery comes first. Like, hell no, I come first. I waited long <laughs> enough for this. I, I come first. At the end of the day, it's kind of one of those building blocks is there is no relationship with me. If he doesn't have that recovery, that brings out the best in him. That really reminds him to be that compassionate, loving, dependable, reliable person that I want in my life. So I have to make sure I'm a part of it, that I understand the importance. And what I've learned is that the big book is not just for addiction. It's a life book. It brings out the best of me too. So I've had to really throw myself into something I didn't really understand at first, but I get the value of it. So I think communication, empathy, taking the time to do things together has really been what's brought us to this point. And it's been probably our most valuable tools, keeping those things at the forefront. Yeah. So, you know, bringing each other into each other's or my recovery and you being a part of it and being able to chair a meeting together and talking about recovery together. You work in recovery. I work in recovery. But yet we still keep that separate. We have our own time and our own family life and we do all the normal things of family. Um, I mean, I'm not going to get into the blessings and the gratitudes and, you know, all the amazing things that are happening in our lives the material things, none of that really truly matters. It's just we've we've reconnected. We continue to elevate our love for each other and push our family forward. Now together, I'm able to contribute. And what we understand ultimately is our relationship and any relationship for that matter is based on five things. Honesty, open communication, genuine concern and love for one another, um, shared decisions and joint action. And so we try to keep those five things in our relationship present at all times because without one of those, then we start to fall back and our relationship will start to suffer. So we don't have it all figured out. It isn't the easiest at all times. Um, we're still working through a ton of things, but the most important thing is, you know, we get to do it together today and it's just a miracle. We have a different story. The, the, the odds of her making it through an eight year prison sentence with me and be coming out and be together and not having damage and continuing to, to love each other and reenter into each other's lives. Like I was gone for a minute. That isn't the norm. Um, so I just think it's a testament to our love and the work that we've put in together. And now we get to share that with others. And it's really giving us purpose. But most importantly, what it's done is it's allowed us to attach to our journey and the pain finally with gratitude because we get to share it with others. So I think it's a really important part. And I love you and I appreciate you, you know, jumping on this first episode with me and getting to do this experience together. Um, and I wouldn't miss it for the world. So thanks for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. And I hope our story continues to motivate others and find your own path. It's not 
the end of your story just because, you know, your loved one's sentenced to something. And I hope you have the courage to find what path works for you. So keep on tuning into the next episodes. Again, season two is going to be all interviews. I'm going to continue to bring different types of people in my life, family, a ton of guys in recovery, some all-stars, some guys just really continuing to elevate themselves and keeping recovery number one and truly proof that everything that comes second after recovery becomes first class. So tune in for the next episode.